Blog Talk Radio. Carol the Coach. Sex, love, and relationships. We talk about it here. Carol the Coach. Compassion with contemporary relevance. I am a psychotherapist. I can be your personal life coach and I can help you with your issues. There are no problems too small or too big. You can talk about anything. Speaker, columnist, radio TV host, and commentator. Carol the Coach brings messages of wellness and empowerment within reach of everyday people every day. Almost five years ago, I lost my soulmate in an accident. He was killed in a plane crash. Life just for me has seemed to stop. There are groups all over the city. I mean, I teach one. It is a specific way to start thinking so that you shift how you see the world, which then shifts your energy, and then you feel better and you actually see things differently. Carol the Coach, always available to at carolthecoach.com. Now I've got Russell on the line. I'm 47 years old. I'm a truck driver. I am married. I have a wife in San Francisco. Okay. I haven't been home in six months. My thing is, I, I don't know if I have a sex addiction or what the problem is. Why do I want what I can't have? And as soon as I can have it, I don't want it anymore. You're right on target when you say, I don't know if I have a sexual addiction. Well, guess what? Yes, you do. And you know what? That's my specialty, Russell. So you're at the right place. Continue. I meet women online and, and I'm in a different part of the country. I, I travel all 48 states, so I love sex. I hear self-esteem issues. You never felt good enough and you didn't feel like you were getting what you should have then and you're re- Enacting that now. Do you want to change that about yourself? Oh, yeah. Hey there, everybody. I am Carol Jurgensen Sheets, aka Carol the Coach. And what I know to be true is that there are many criteria that meet um, the diagnostic. Criteria for compulsive, problematic sexual behavior. You know, that's what we're probably going to be talking about in terms of our diagnostic statistical manual. I told you last week the World Health Organization has already said they're going to put it in their manual so that your sexual addiction or your partners, whether you're a man or a woman, your husband or wife, it's important to have a diagnostic category because that makes it more than likely insurance reimbursable. And, you know, I've been saying for years that 50 years from now, we're going to, be ho- we're going to have hospitals that are totally, totally dedicated to sex addiction and partner trauma. This is epidemic. I'm not here to worry yet, but what I believe to be true is that the Internet has made it so affordable, anonymous, and accessible that it is hardwiring the brains of our kids, of our college kids, and of men and women of any age to want to get on the Internet and see what else is out there. Sometimes that's about sex. And you would think, okay, well, that's a sex addiction. But sometimes it's about the pursuit, the seduction, the chase, and that is the addiction. Sometimes it's about attention and admiration and the self-esteem hit that one can take when they're involved in 
seduction or pursuit of a sexual relationship, but we all know that that sexually addictive cycle creates self-loathing, self-hatred, and a real sense of I'm not good enough. And that, unfortunately, then perpetuates the need to act out further, to medicate those feelings. So it is. It is a vicious cycle, and you are here at the right place. Whether you are an addict or a partner of an addict, you are absolutely positively here at the right place to get education about what this illness is, what betrayal trauma is, how sex addiction can cause intimacy issues, and what to do about that. You know, tonight I'm lucky enough to have Dr. Carol Clark on, who has written the book, Addict America, The Lost Connection. And Dr. Clark wants listeners to look at how family of origin issues may be impacting their current relationships. You know, one of the things that we do not, I don't subscribe to, I don't subscribe to, oh, my gosh, you love an addict, therefore there was something in your childhood that drew you to him, and that's why you've been putting up with this. I don't subscribe to that because what I know about addiction is that it's cunning, baffling, and so secretive if you're a partner, you didn't know he was doing this. But from a marital standpoint or a relationship standpoint, we as marital and family therapists have been taught, and I do believe, oftentimes we pick our partners to actually work out some of our own family of origin issues. You know, I have always said, I picked my husband because I married my mother. And out of the two, it was my mother that was by far the most difficult. And so I love my husband. But just the other day, I said, oh, my gosh, this is my mother all over the place. He was um, going to be drumming in a band for the first time in, what, 25 years. And I kept saying, are you nervous, honey? And he kept going, no, I'm not nervous. But the night before, he was running around like a chicken without his head, and he was barking at me. And I finally just had to say, you know what, stop treating me like this. And he's like, what, what, I'm not, you should be sensitive to how nervous I am. And I thought, oh, this is my mother before she has a big party. She cannot contain that anxiety. And so she's um, snappy, irritable, annoyed, frustrated. So I set some healthy limits and of course, being the good husband he is, he came back to me and said, um, he didn't say I'm sorry, but he said, hey, can I put those chairs in your car? Can I set that up out on the porch? I mean, he was basically doing what we call acts of service based on the five love languages, and I knew he was apologizing. And when I told a friend the next day what he did, she goes, why didn't you demand an apology? And I said, you know what, that was an apology. Now, my mother would never have apologized, but my husband is a good person, and he knew that he was reacting to his own stress. Okay, that's an example of how I married my mother. So be thinking about 
how might you have ended up with the person that you're with to work out childhood issues that maybe, maybe go way below the surface of sex addiction? You know, maybe they have to do with the intimacy disorder. Maybe they have to do with how does this person meet your needs. One thing I know to be true is that when you're a child, you depend on your parents to affirm you, to love you, to um, basically let you know that you're worthy. And then, of course, when you have that good sense of that, then you go off into the world and you know you're worthy and you kind of command and demand that from others. Not in a pushy way, but in a way that says, I will teach you how to treat me, and if you don't treat me that way, because we all know you can't always control how other people treat you, I will make other choices that allow me to take care of myself. So, sex addiction is an intimacy disorder. No doubt about it. Now, it's always interesting to say, okay, which one came first, the chicken or the egg? Were there intimacy issues um, prevalent in the relationship that then affect one's ability to pick or make healthy choices in the relationship? And then... In addition to that, sexual addiction occurs, which further increases the intimacy issues. Or is it kind of the other way around? You really had a fairly healthy relationship. You grew up with fairly healthy parents, and you picked this person, unbeknownst to you, somebody who had addiction issues, and then he or she lied, cheated, conned, whatever, and all of a sudden you woke up one day and you discovered that the man or the woman that you loved had a secret life, a dual life. I don't know what you would say, but what I know to be true is, regardless, it is traumatizing, it is excruciating, and... It's important to pay attention to what's going on for you so that you can then set up healthy boundaries, healthy communication, and learn the intimacy skills that you need to improve your relationship. Now, if any of you want more information about some of those boundaries, what is assertiveness, how do you develop resilience, um, how to develop empathy, you can go to my YouTube channel, which is sexhelpwithcarolthecoach.com. That is for my addicts and my partners. If you just happen to be listening to the show and you're not an addict or a partner and you want more life skills, you can go to YouTube under Carol Sheets. It'll take you to my Carol the Coach YouTube channel. You see, I have two websites, carolthecoach.com and then Sex Help with Carol the Coach. I am a life coach. I am a mental health therapist. 
I am a CSAT, a Certified Sexual Addictions Therapist, and I'm an APSATS. I am a Clinical Certified Partner Specialist. I work with partner trauma. So I have this show on Monday nights, and then I have a show on Betrayal Recovery Radio. Brr. That's right, Betrayal Recovery Radio, and that is an APSAT-sponsored radio show. It's uh, Thursdays at 2 o'clock. And so between the two, I try to hit all the issues that you may be facing if you love somebody with an addiction or if you are the addict. You don't have to be in a coupleship. But what I know to be true is that when you are, it is the greatest betrayal in the world. And so the partner experiences the worst betrayal ever, and the addict experiences this horrible self-loathing because they know that they've hurt you. And again, that can be very, very difficult. And that's why we're here to help you tonight and every night. We are the oldest radio show on sexual addiction and partner trauma. Very proud to say that have over a half a million open downloads a week worldwide. So I know that this is an issue and um, want you to know that we're here to help. And that is why I've got Dr. Carol Clark on tonight, who's going to be talking about how sexual addiction causes intimacy issues and how your family of origin issues may be impacting your current relationship. She's going to be talking about some compact. Uh, I'm sorry. She's going to be talking about some very important um, ideas around the paradox of power, and obviously addiction in America, because she knows that you can get healthy if you have the right information, the right tools, you make the right choices, the right assistance from people that really know. So, Dr. Carol Clark. Welcome to Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Thank you. I'm really happy to be here. Yes, you have really made it your mission to educate clinicians all over the world about what is healthy um, sexuality and how to get healthier if you don't have a good sex life, especially with sexual addiction and partner trauma. Absolutely. Sex addiction is one of those things that, uh, you know, it's like eating. You have to do it. So it's about teasing out what's unhealthy and what's healthy. And so I am a sex therapist and uh, help people develop really healthy sex lives. But I'm also an addictions therapist, so I'm looking at how how uh, things like sex can become um, addictive and unhealthy and how to uh, separate them out. Well, absolutely, and and so you have several conceptualizations. Uh, you know, your belief that obviously many addicts and partners unconsciously learn in their childhood that it's not safe to get close to people, and and that that stems from family of origin issues. And I want to know with this paradox of power and intimacy by numbers. How did you develop this conceptualization? So I was working with couples a lot and um, started working with sex addicts a lot. And I realized that um, 
They keep coming in with, uh, for one thing, I, I keep saying the same thing all the time. I was giving them an educational portion of uh, therapy where I was teaching them about <clears throat> how they um, got into addiction, how the addicts get into addiction, and then what to do about that. And I started putting it all together, and then I wrote the book on it, <laughs> my own book on it. Um, but I was looking at this this um, phenomenon where, and again, we're not blaming anyone here, but people come together out of an equal fear of intimacy. And uh, I came up with an easy way to explain that with intimacy by the numbers. So in childhood, we learn what's safe and what's not safe. We start getting messages about <clears throat> the world not being a safe place. And we get mess we internalize messages about ourselves like I'm not important, I'm worthless, um I'm not good enough. And that sets up that uh the beginnings of a fear of intimacy. You know, I can get so close and no closer because if I get too close to someone, they're going to see how worthless, unimportant, not good enough I am. And then we unconsciously go through life, um, and again, it's very unconscious. It's all back in the limbic system, the caveman brain. But we unconsciously are attracted to people who have that equal fear of intimacy. So if we think of it like a number, if one person is a three and another is a seven, then one of them is going to be chasing the other one around, and that's not going to last too long. So one person wants to get closer than the other one is comfortable being. But if two people are five, it plays into mm -hmm. that um, that pursuant and avoidance kind of model. Mm Mhm. Yeah, and for some people, that's a that's a comfort right there. That's what they're used to. But for people that end up together, um, or you know what, when you say the pursuant avoidant, actually that's um, that can often be that, that dance that people do. So if, if you have someone who, if you have two people who have the equal fear of intimacy, so say we have two sixes get together because unconsciously that feels good. So there's that distance that uh, they're both comfortable with. They get so close and no closer. And then, but... You know, we have in our, our limbic system I call the caveman brain, and that's where survival is, it's where pleasure is, it's where um, emotions live, and it's where addiction lives. And then we have the prefrontal cortex, which is the thinking, reasoning, and spiritual part of the brain, and that I call the enlightened brain. And so we, the fear of intimacy is back in the limbic system, the caveman brain. But the desire to connect, that recognition of our innate connectedness with all living things, with each other, with the, the universe, that makes us strive to be closer. And so then we get into that dance of one, per, of, of one person saying, well, I want to be closer. And... And yet, then the par one of the paradoxes is, as they're trying to be closer, because their enlightened brain says, I want to be closer, but the limbic system, the caveman brain, is, is pulling away. And so they start doing that dance, because there's a safety, actually. If I say I want to be closer to you, but yet innately, unconsciously, I know that you're going to be 
pulling back, then it's safe for me to say that. If you suddenly turn around and say, okay, I want to be closer to you, <laughs> then that's going to get very unsafe really quickly, and I'm going to pull back. Absolutely. So we do that dance. Okay, so now let me ask you, do you believe that the conceptualization of intimacy by numbers and that paradox of power, do you think that applies to everyone? I do, I do, because um, it's just programmed into us. And so as we move through life, um, that's who we're unconsciously going to be attracted to. And so there's, there's people who may not have any fear of intimacy, and they get very close. They're, they're capable of true connection, true intimate connection. And then they're not playing power and control games to balance that or to try and maintain that disconnect. And so those pe- people are going to find each other. But everyone, and then everyone else is also going to find the person that uh, keeps that, that, that distance you know, again, it's a comfortable distance for them, unconsciously, unconsciously distance. So it applies to everyone because that's, you know, as we're going through life, again, if, if my number is a seven and yours is a three, we're just not going to connect. So it's not even a chasing of each other because we're just not even on the same wavelength. Does well, that make sense? Like, because obviously the seven is going to be chasing the three a little bit. The connection is never going to be met. And where does the addiction show up? Now, so what, so what I mean is the seven and the three are never even going to get together. Oh, They're God. not even going to be on the same radar. The threes and threes are going to be together. And they're going to make, so if you think about it like as feet, okay, so threes are people who are comfortable being three feet apart, and sevens are are comfortable being ten, seven feet apart, okay? So it's finding that person who's your match, and then the the playing around with power and control is about doing that um, dance to keep that distance. And so the power and control manifests in parent-child type relations and interactions. And it manifests in just the the different power games people play. Um, You know, and having, like, for instance, having stupid fights, you know, like, why won't you wash the dishes? And uh, starting fights whenever there's, uh, you start feeling closer, um, you, you do something to start a fight and pull apart. And, of course, as a sex therapist, I see people who are using sex as a power and control thing. And so they'll come up with reasons to be sexually distanced. If they start getting emotionally close, then they use sex as a way to push apart and, um, so they'll come in and say, well, we want to get back to the way we used to be. We used to be really connected sexually, and now we're not. But what happened? Well, they fell in love. <laughs> and so that um, they're playing that push-pull um, <clears throat> with uh, that distance, um, using sex as a way to distance, because once you've, you have the emotional closeness, then you need something's got to give, and it's going to be the sex. Um, so the and people getting together are the total. ones with that equal fear of intimacy. And it's going to be that way until they go, somebody goes into therapy. And then they both have to go into therapy. <laughs> well, I know because I was wondering how in the world would people begin to 
to improve their marital or, you know, relationship issues? And, and obviously, how do they heal their childhood wounds? Mm. Yeah, and you did you did mention, um, you know, the addicts in there. And so, you know, this is where the addiction comes in, is addiction is a barrier to intimacy. And... Um, so again, we're not blame, we're not ever blaming the partners of addicts, but partners of addicts get involved with addicts for a reason. There's an unconscious barrier there, and so the partner of an addict who gets together with an addict is is recognizing unconsciously here's a reason to stay distanced. Now, what happens is the addict starts getting well when they go into recovery because. Addiction isn't isn't static. It's dynamic. It's always changing. It's getting worse. So sooner or later, that addict is is going to hit that wall where they have to uh, hit bottom, whatever, and they're going to go into recovery, hopefully. And then they're going to, through recovery and healing from childhood wounds, and those wounds can be um, severe. They can come from you know real abuse, or they can be seemingly not so severe, but to a child, they're very severe. So picture a a little kid who comes home with a B on a report card, and the parent, well-meaning as the parent may try to be, uh, is saying, why didn't you get an A? And when you have that kind of parent, like all the time, you know, thinking they're encouraging their child to do better, but really giving the message, you're not good enough. And now that child is developing that fear of intimacy. I can't get too close because I'm not good enough. And that's the kind of childhood wound, you know, kids who are picked on, who are bullied, who maybe are gay or transgender, kids, um, you know, who just uh, whose parents are alcoholics or otherwise unavailable to them. And so they just go through life, uh, you know, their childhood life, with this message that I'm not important, I'm worthless, I'm not good enough. And then that causes this fear of intimacy and a pain, a pain because we are all connected, right? So we're all connected, but there's a pain in being disconnected. And Uh so now when we find something that makes us feel good, some some potentially addictive behavior, or drug that makes us feel good, then we want to do more of it because suddenly there's that relief of pain. It's not just feeling good and, ha-ha, I I feel great, I'm drunk or whatever, but there's also that relief of pain. So we carry that into our our adult lives. We become addicts. We're suffering with this pain. And then we go into recovery. And then when we go into recovery, we start we we have to heal those childhood wounds. So, you know, through therapy, with uh, I do EMDR, eye movement desensitization reprocessing, which is a, a non-talk therapy. I recommend non-talk therapies to everyone um, <clears throat> to get back into the limbic system and heal those childhood wounds. Okay, so now we have a person who's healed, who is now an adult. They're not living in the past, and they're capable of deeper intimacy. And that's when they're going to be looking at their partner. Now the partner no longer can hide behind the addict's fear of intimacy to safely say, I want to be closer. Now we have a partner who says, uh, you know, we have an addict who says, I'm I'm really in recovery now. I can be closer. And then the partner has to deal with his or her own 
childhood wounds in order to really get closer. Otherwise, now we're, we've got more problems. <laughs> Does that make sense? Absolutely. And let me remind my listening audience that I'm talking with Dr. Carol Clark. Her website is www.drcarolclark.com, and she wrote Addict America, The Lost Connection. And so this is after working with lots and lots and lots of couples that you started to see all these patterns, and you you came up with a conceptualization where you knew you needed to explore the paradox of power. Can you tell us a little bit about that, and what does that have to do with intimacy control? Okay, so the paradox of power <clears throat> is trying to use something external to control internal states. And so it's thinking that we're in control when we're not. So um, with couples, we'll say, we'll stick with couples, um, or anyone who's an addict, they're trying to use something external. So addicts are reaching for drugs. They're reaching for a drug. They're reaching for a behavior. So that's something external to control themselves, control that belief that I'm not good enough. Uh, There's something wrong with me. I'm worthless. And the pain that goes with that. So instead of, you know, looking at within oneself and saying, I need to heal from this, they're reaching externally. And often then they'll use a person to try to control that. And so people become drugs. So anyone that's saying, well, I just, my life would be better if I just had someone in my life, if I just had a life partner. Well, that's coming from a place of need, and you're trying to fix yourself with another person. And so really you're just drug-seeking when you're looking for a person. And so the paradox there is, you know, exemplified by the serenity prayer. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change. That's anything external to me. So when I'm trying to go after someone else to reassure me that I'm lovable, attractive, worthwhile, important, good enough, you know, if you can just do more and more and more for me to keep proving that to me, uh, then I'll be okay, but it doesn't work. And so there's your drug-seeking behavior. Give me more and more and more, and it's never going to be enough. And... um, so then the uh, so the serenity prayer guy grant me the serenity to accept things I cannot change. So that's everything external. The courage to change the things I can. Okay, so that's myself. That's to finally take responsibility for myself, for my own feelings of worthlessness, to recognize that originally it came from an external source, but now I've taken it in. I've made it part of my being, part of my way of thinking and believing and acting. And um, then the wisdom to know the difference. So the paradox of power is that when I keep looking, when I keep trying to control external things to control my internal state, it's never going to work. But when I turn around and stop trying to control everything around me and look at controlling myself and taking responsibility, then I will actually be in control. 
And it's kind of like well, step one in the 12 steps, you know, admit we're powerless. In that powerlessness over the addiction, people actually gain power over themselves. So obviously you are a sex therapist and obviously a psychologist and you've been working with couples for a long, long time. What made you develop the specialty niche and write a book about addicts? Well, um, so actually I'm not a psychologist. My Ph.D. is in uh, human sexuality. So I am a sex therapist. I'm a licensed mental health counselor and a certified addictions professional. And um, what made me write a book? Um, is that what you, you just asked me when I wrote a book? About addiction, about sex addiction. About addiction, yeah. Um, you know, originally, I didn't want anything to do with addiction. My father was an alcoholic. Um, my first really long-term boyfriend when I was in my early 20s was an addict, really bad addict. And uh, by the time I went to school, the last thing I wanted was anything to do with addiction. But um, my father, towards the end of his life, went into recovery. My boyfriend called me, ex-boyfriend, called me up out of nowhere and did an amends with me, which was really powerful. And um, and then I had gotten my degree, my master's degree, and needed a job. And the only place I could get a job was a drug rehab. So the universe clearly had a, a place for me. And uh, I and then I became a sex therapist, and I saw the intersection of um, sex, you know, sex and addiction. Uh, so in sex addiction, it just made sense. And um, as I started, you know, putting myself out there to to work with sex addicts and their partners, um, and just general mental health, uh, you know, working with couples for sex therapy. And looking at what's the problem, you know, what gets in the way of people having good sex? I mean, really, what on earth is is the problem? If you have two people that like each other, care about each other, and want to enjoy each other sexually, how on earth do they manage to have problems with that? So I started really looking at all that, and that's where um, it just, you know, you go, I look at the meanings of things. So, for instance, when I have a, you know, I have a couple come in, they say, oh, yeah, we're just not having good sex, and we're not getting along, and we're not communicating. Okay, and we start breaking it down, and we realize, you know, we'll break down an argument. What did you, you know, I'll give them some homework, and then they'll come back, well, we didn't get our homework because, uh, you know, our, our touching exercises, because we had a fight. Well, what did you fight about? Well, we fought over, you know, because... She didn't, you know, she hasn't done the dishes in a week. And, you know, we might say, well, I'd be mad too if my partner didn't do dishes for a week. But I don't do that. I'm going to ask, what's the meaning of that for you? So if she doesn't do the dishes for a week, what does that mean about you? Well, it means she doesn't care about me. Ah, so she doesn't care about me. Uh, It means I'm not important. You know, okay, so you're not important. She doesn't care about you. When's an earlier time that you felt that way? And it goes right back to childhood. And so this is where every time it goes back to childhood. Because a healthy couple is going to be like, hey, let's have a talk about how to get the dishes done because that's the problem. And we're both busy people and whatever. But people that have this fear of intimacy, they're doing this dual thing of, creating distance, maintaining that distance, 
and you know working and and still staying stuck in that childhood trauma. So, you know, my parents didn't care about me, or one of my parents didn't care about me, didn't love me. And so that's the filter through which they see everything, what everyone does, what everything's about. So once we can really take that in, then it's like, okay, um, can we can we push through that discomfort? Can we stay... With our with our prefrontal cortex, our light and brain, can we say, you know what, we want to be more connected, we want to be more intimate, and therefore every decision we make, it's going to be, is this connecting us or is this disconnecting us? And then we're going to do the trauma work to to free up, free free up um, all that energy, um, get rid of that childhood stuff. Um, look at the behavioral aspects of being in recovery and working a recovery plan. And then pushing through the discomfort with that willingness from the enlightened brain to say, you know what, it's going to be uncomfortable to get closer, but we want to do it. And so you need two people that are really mindful about that, and then they can do it. Well, absolutely, and you seem to guide them through the way. So now, if this is resonating with some of our listening audience would you tell them, yes, get the book, Addict America, The Lost Connection? Will that help to identify those family, childhood issues, and will it help give them a direction to move towards in their coupleship? Um, absolutely. So that's why I wrote the book. It was everything that I had learned um, in my personal life, in my professional life, Everything, it became, you know, it's really the book is a pocket therapist. So you have a pocket Dr. Clark. <laughs> and uh, it's it just, I write it really simply, uh, simple language. It's written the way I talk. And um, it's uh, great for therapists. It's great for people, for everyone, for the clients, for just anyone. And the feedback I get is it really resonates for people. But it starts out with, you know, what's going on in your brain. And then what's going on in relationships and um, how we can be more connected. At the end of the day, how can we be more connected? And it just has some simple exercises at the end. When people say, um, you know, what do I need to do? I want to be in recovery or I want to be closer to my partner or anything. You know, what what can I do? And I said, do the exercises in the book <laughs> because they're just real simple things that um, – if you do them every day, your life will definitely be better. You'll be more connected. You'll just be more grounded and more present, and you'll be in recovery. So now what would you say to you know an injured partner who has no idea of these issues and resists any implication that says she has a fear or he has a fear of intimacy? Mm. It's tough. It's tough because I certainly you know, partners are very traumatized with good reason. Absolutely they're traumatized by an addict's acting out, and especially sex addicts. Sex addicts just do really harmful, painful be- behaviors when they're acting out. And um, and so, you know, any partner really needs to get his or her feet under them you know, they've had the rug pulled out from under them, and it can take a while to just get to a place where they can feel safe enough 
um, to to do anything. You know, it's like going through an earthquake or a tornado, and you know everything you believed, everything you thought you knew, um, has just been destroyed. And at some place, again, we can't be static. It's there's going to be there needs to be some kind of growth and movement, and um, because every nothing's going to be the same. You know, once you find out, for instance, in a typical case, you find out that your, you know, if a wife finds out her husband has been cheating on her. Uh, with prostitutes and with, you know, online and doing all the things that sex addicts do, it is devastating. And so that partner's going to need a lot of support. And, you know, there's groups, there's uh, codependent groups. Or um, I, I know the field of sex addiction is getting away from the term codependence. But um, right now that's what the groups are called, any support groups for um, partners with sex addicts. And, um there's going to be, um, uh, you know, just a period of dealing with the trauma. But then at some point, it's like, well, okay, where are we going to go? How are, where are we going to go from here? Because we're never going to go back. We can't go back, and no, nor would you want to. So we're going to start making decisions about what kind of person do I want to be? What, how do I want my life to look? And, you know, then at some point that partner is going to need to, if they're going to move forward, they need to look at their own life and say, you know, what what made this comfortable for me to be with this person who was never fully present? You know, just never fully present because unconsciously you just, you know, if you're with someone who's living a double life um, and you had no clue then on some level, and I know there's there's going there's people out there who work with sex addicts who are going to be, you know, like no, don't say that. It's because I'm not trying to I'm not trying to harm or, you know, blame anyone. But I do mm-hmm. truly believe that at some point, that partner of a sex addict needs to say, what allowed me to be with this person? Well, how was I comfortable? with someone who was never truly present because they had this whole other life. And, and that's that a comes really important from, point. You're, thank you're you. talking yeah. about neglect and you're talking about a woman who may not have known what was going on, but certainly mm-hmm. an addict can't be an addict without leaving her in the dust. You know, they're although they're good at compartmentalization, there's mm-hmm. also a vacancy there that she should feel. No doubt. And sometimes, we'll say she, but it could be a male partner too, but mm-hmm, clearly mm-hmm. a woman may have a family to raise, so she's focusing on her children, or she may be a, she may be working outside of the home and trying to manage the household. I mean, there's lots of things that makes it easier to not look at her own needs and that intimacy um, anorexia, if you will. That's occurring. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it is easy. You know, we, we get caught up in our daily lives and we, we ignore things. We ignore taking care of ourselves. We ignore, um, you know, we just kind of just go along and make excuses, rationalize. We want to believe that things are okay. You know, we want it so bad. So we're not looking. And we might not have time, like you say, you know, for people that have kids and jobs and um, and don't have the skills 
you know, we're raised, very few people are raised with um, any knowledge of how to communicate effectively. They just aren't. You know, we learn from our parents, we learn from observation, and they learn from their parents. And so often there's, you know, people come to counseling. A lot of what I do is teaching people to communicate effectively, use I statements, be able to sit and reflect to each other. And it's really uncomfortable. People have a hard time learning that and practicing it. So we practice in my office, and then I give them homework to go home and practice. And, and if they do it, then they'll come back and they'll say, you know what, this this is really effective. <laughs> but um, just, you know, simply communicating well. But so if you're in a busy life and you've got a, per, uh, you're a partner who's, you know, you're not feeling quite connected to, but, you know, how do you sit down and say, you know what, we need to talk about this. I really would like to have a talk about this. And this is what I'm feeling. This is what I'm noticing. And to be able to talk about it without being accusatory and without getting into a defensive place. And that's really hard when you're coming from a childhood (laughs) where you have those messages of being worthless or not important, they're not good enough. So that's going to get in the way. How It takes a lot of practice to not get defensive. Well, and now let me ask you, what happens if a partner just says, oh, to hell with it, and wants to leave? What might you say to her or him? What I say is, yeah, that's fine. First I say that's I get it. I get it. You have been really, really hurt, and you don't see any light at the end of this tunnel. And, um, you know, your your trust has been violated to a place where, to a point where it's just feels like nothing good is ever going to come of this. And nothing can, it's irreparable. Okay, I get that. And first, how about let's not make any decisions right away because, um you know, the decisions we make in crisis are not always going to be the best ones. And the next thing is you have an opportunity in this moment to practice some new ways of being, to do some work here. So whether or not you stay with this person, uh, this is an opportunity to practice communicating, to do some work on yourself, to take a little time just for you to explore your own life, your own, you know, stuff from childhood that you're bringing into adulthood. And you can take this time to do it. So even if you leave this person, if you stay with them, great, you know, then then it'll help your relationship. And if you don't, it will definitely help you in your next relationship. Because I guarantee if you don't deal with it now, you'll deal you'll be in the same situation later. Well, and that's a universal you got to be able to work through the trauma that happens to you so that you prevent it from happening again. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. So yeah. now if one person embraces the idea and the other doesn't, what do you do with that division in a coupleship? You know, we just I work with whoever's in front of me, and quite often what I do is I'll use the analogy of we're all on a road. We're on this road. You don't even need to make 
a lot of heavy decisions because we're all going down the road and we all jo- we join up with someone and we're walking along the road for a while and sometimes it goes smoothly sometimes it doesn't sometimes you know the other person keeps wanting to drift away and we might pull them back or we might follow them um you know we might have to carry them or help them a little while or they'll ha- they're helping us um, but when we have one person that's really on their path and they're looking forward, they're not looking behind and they're not looking around. They're just, you know, really looking forward into their future, enjoying the ride, <laughs> enjoying the walk, but looking towards the future. And if you're if you're with someone that's doing that with you, who's your companion, then you'll be with them. And if at some point they're just be t- becoming too much of a burden or you're constantly turning around and trying to pull them along, um, just keep walking. And at some point, you're going to look back, and maybe they're going to, they'll fall in way behind. And you're, you can call out some encouragement, like, hey, come on, let's go. But you know what? If you keep waiting for them, you're never going to get move forward on your journey. And so what's going to happen is you, you're going to keep looking forward, you're going to be moving along, and one day you're going to turn around and look, and they're not going to be there. They'll just, you know, they just won't be there. And now you didn't need to decide to leave them or to split up. It's just you continued your path and they stayed behind or they went off on another fork in the road. You know, so everybody just moves along the road and we pair up for a while or we join a group for a while and then we, you know, I come into people's lives for a while and then they're going to go on their journey. And uh, take well, away some of the tools that I've, you know, I've I've shown them. But um, and so that's what people are going to do in their lives. They're they're just uh, you know one person. If one person is in recovery and the other's not, that person's going to be walking along, and one day their partner's just not going to be there. Yeah, that's a good point. And if one person you know embraces this idea and the other doesn't, it sounds like what you're saying is that. Somebody's not going to get, they're not going to be walking together. So if that is mm-hmm. the case, for the person that was willing to do the work and the other person wasn't ready, wasn't um, astute enough to know what to do, what is, well, how does someone figure out if the next person that they meet is going to have the same problem? I mean, I think that's what mm-hmm. all couples when they split up that they're going to find somebody else exactly like the last person. Well, there you go. That brings us right back to intimacy by the numbers. Because if I've been a seven, I'm staying seven feet away from somebody in my addiction, but then I go into recovery and now I'm a three or a two or a one. And so I'm really in my recovery now, I'm capable of of really connected intimacy, then that's who I'm going to find. I don't even have to think about it because that's who I'm going to be attracted to and who's going to be attracted to me is someone else who is is capable of that same level of intimacy and connection. And the person who doesn't work on it is going to, again, they're going to attract the same number again. Good point. So now, again, let's remind our listening audience that people can learn more about this by either going to your website, www.drclark.com, 
Carol Clark. Carol Clark. <laughs> or they can get your book, Addict America, The Lost Connection, and that is available on Amazon.com. Mm-hmm. Yeah, paperback and, and Kindle. Mm-hmm. Excellent. And then last but not least, if they need to contact you, if they want to work with you specifically or want some additional resources, they can get a hold of you at counselor at drcarolclark.com. Mm-hmm. That's it. And that's um, there's a contact me on the website, and it's just counselor, C-O-U-N-S-E-L-O-R, at Dr. Carol Clark, no period, just D-R-C-A-R-O-L-C-L-A-R-K.com. And I'm very happy to uh, talk with anyone, to um, help people, that's what I do, <laughs> and uh, and I also train other therapists, so I do a lot of teaching now. So I'm well, training you, therapists through my schools. Yeah, so just as we end for today, there are a lot of clinicians uh, and coaches, actually, that listen to the show to get more information and resources for their clients. Share a little bit about your school and the work that you do um, because it's really unique, and for certified sexual addictions therapists, you have a special deal. Yes, I do. So I started, uh, I have an addictions training program, and I have a sex therapy training program to train therapists in addictions and train them in sex therapy. And uh, we certify them as well. And then I combined uh, some different programs. I also have a program for uh, transgender care therapists. And I combined everything into a PhD program. So now um, I'm one of the like less than a handful of programs in the country that offer a Ph.D. in clinical sexology. And that combines the sex therapy or clinical sexology component. Uh, People get to choose a specialty and then do a research dissertation or project. And so for those sex addiction therapists out there, CSATs, who are trained by ITAP, um, that can count as the specialty. And so that gives you a considerable chunk off your training and tuition. <laughs> so um, that gives you a quarter of the price off tuition. And um, then you, too, can combine your sex therapy, uh, sex addiction therapy with sex therapy so that you can go forth and um, teach positive sexuality and deal with a whole range of sexuality issues in addiction, in addition to sex addiction. And for any other therapist listening, you have a choice of specialties and to be a sex therapist. And believe me, it's very exciting. It's it's a very rewarding career. And, um, and it puts your head and shoulders above everyone else. It really helps you find a niche. And um, it's been a good life, and that's where I'm at now in my life. I'm really paying it forward and teaching the next generation. Yes, and you're doing a wonderful job. So, Dr. Carol Clark, I thank you so much for, obviously, the way you've contributed to clinicians and the work that they're doing and and helping couples because, i tell you what, I'm APSATS. And APS, I, I'm a certified sexual addictions therapist, but I'm also very proud to be an APSAT, which is partner-sensitive training. And 
clearly what we know is exactly what you said, that when there's been partner betrayal or huge neglect, it's easy to go back into that limbic system and go into fight, flight, or freeze. And when you do that and when you've gone through discovery, it, you feel very unsafe and the executive functioning of your brain doesn't work and you don't know who you've become. And, and so the most important work we can do is help couples that want to stay together figure out how to get through this chaos and actually improve their sense of self and their understanding of their own childhood development. And you are a major contributor in that field. So thank you so much. Well, thank you. Thank you for the work you do, and uh, thank you for allowing me on your show. It's a, ple- it's a pleasure and an honor. And uh, anything that gets the word out, uh, it's just so important. There's not too many of us that do this work, and it's greatly needed. Well, 100%. So keep us posted when you're doing new projects, writing new books, and creating new courses for clinicians or couples. I want to know about it, okay? (laughs) Thank you. Absolutely. All right. You have a great week. All right. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye, everyone. Bye-bye. So that was Dr. Carol Clark. You can see her website at www.carolclark.com. DrCarolClark.com. Her book is Addict America, Lost Connection, and she's obviously made it her mission to help couples figure out what they need to do to heal their wounds and grow stronger as a result, both individually and together. And that's what this show is all about. So I look forward to helping you individually or as a couple figure out what you need to do next. You know, I've made it my mission to educate you. So as I say at the end of every show, you know, there will only be one of you at all times, and I fearlessly want you to have the courage to be yourself. Um, Feel free to look at my YouTube videos. Again, that's on YouTube. Sex Help with Carol the Coach or Carol Sheets, which is my name, um, which has kind of just your typical personal life coaching YouTubes. I've got over 100 of them, and uh, I feel very blessed to be able to disseminate information in a zillion ways. And then please go to that new radio station I got going Thursday afternoons at 2 o'clock through appsats.org. Betrayal Recovery Radio, and um, it's through Blog Talk. So that website is www.blogtalkradio.com forward slash Betrayal Recovery Radio. And I'll catch you next week for more Sex Help with Carol the Coach. Make it a good one. <laughs>